I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Hey, have you noticed that your internet is kind of shitty lately? Does Spotify Smart Shuffle keep playing the same Cure song over and over again? Does a quick Google search give you page after page of obvious advertisements? Want to leave Facebook behind, but that one group chat just won't let you go? Well, have I got the book for you. The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation. It's a little bit history, it's a little bit manifesto, and it's all about one simple concept that can help us get out of this mess. Interoperability. Here with me today to discuss is the book's author, Cory Doctorow. Doctorow is a writer, activist, and journalist. He's motherboard through and through, and I'm so happy to have him back on the show. We're going to pick up the conversation in media res, as they say, with Dr. O telling us about a dual book launch that he just did with Brian Merchant, who, if you'll remember, was on the show last week talking about the Luddites. And Dr. O is going to tell us his thoughts on that Luddite missive before getting into his own work. The book is so good. Uh, you know, I, I blurbed it and all, uh, but it's it's just awesome. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because they're... I liked recording both of these back to back and reading them back to back because they're kind of of a of a piece, right? Yeah. Um, there, the, we we're, we live in this era now where people are generally, I think, tired of big tech, um, and they there's a feeling uh, that the internet has gotten shittier. One might say even that it's uh, been inshitified or is going through inshitification. Um, so your book is a little bit how we got here and also a lot of what we do about it now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm a great believer in the theory of change of my arch rival, Milton Friedman, uh, the, the architect of the neoliberal revolution and court sorcerer to Ronald Reagan, who was like an absolute freak. So, you know, his, his whole project, which I think he largely succeeded in was rolling back cold war, uh, post post-war uh, shared prosperity and turning us all into forelock tugging plebs again who don't, you know, mouth off to our social betters. And at the time, people said, like, Milton, how are you going to get people to voluntarily return to the Gilded Age? And he was like, in times of crisis, ideas lying around can move from the periphery to the center. Our job is to keep those good ideas lying around until the impossible becomes the inevitable. And if there's one thing that, you know, late stage capitalism and monopolized internet has given us, it's an absolute bounty of crises. And uh, thus far, nearly every time a crisis strikes, we just do the same thing we did last time, only harder and hope for a better outcome, which has been an abject failure, and I think will continue to be an abject failure. But I do think that like, writing good technical programs for how we demonopolize the internet and return uh, technological self-determination to communities and individuals uh, is a way to actually see those programs realized because there are so many crises that there's going to be lots of opportunities to say, how about we don't just do the same thing as last time? We do something that'll actually work this time. One of the things I like about the book uh, and you and merchants, both of your frames um, is there's this idea that the Luddites rejected technology, smashed the looms, but Merchant loves tech, uh, you love tech, uh, divorced from the concept of like Silicon Valley's tech. Um, and the internet con is very much about how we can't abandon te- we can't and should not abandon technology. We have to learn how to control it and kind of seize it from the people that have basically stolen it from us. Uh, you say tech is the terrain on which our future fights will be fought. If we can seize the means of computation, if we can't seize the means of computation, we will lose the fight before it's even joined. Um, do you think, so there is something worth saving here, right? And it's still savable. Cause I think there's a lot of doom in the air around this topic just right now. Sure. And, and you know, I think if you want to, if you want to draw a, a sharp line between the Luddite critique and my own, it's that, um, the mill owners said that the idea of 
improving the speed at which you make textiles was inseparable from the idea of immiserating workers, hanging those who objected to it, kidnapping children from Napoleonic war orphanages, uh, enslaving them to 10 years of indenture and mangling them in the machines. That these are just like, these are, these are just things that go together. Uh, and can't be pulled apart. It's a pre-feast menu. Uh, you know, as Margaret Thatcher used to say, there is no alternative, right? And um, this is something that today's tech barons want to say. Like, if you want to have a mobile device where the software is good, you have to allow one company to criminalize making other software stores and then use their monopoly over payments to take 30 cents out of every dollar that every creative worker, news agency, and software developer makes on the platform. Um, think about, you know, the Unity strike that we just had where, uh, you know, the users were so angry about Unity wanting to raise the prices on the um, on, on how uh, games were distributed. And the CEO in his climb down said, well, we're, gonna, we're not going to go with the plan we had, but we need to find another plan whereby we get paid every time someone uh, sells a game that is made with our tool. And that's like, uh, we just need to find an equitable arrangement whereby every time Rembrandt sells a painting, we get paid for having made the paintbrush. Or every time someone renovates a house, we get paid for having made the hammer. Like, not only does Unity say that you can't own Unity, right? You have to pay a subscription for it every month or every year. But you also can't own the things that you make with Unity. And they just argue that this is like, you know, the sight of hand here is that this is a natural law, right? Like, the, the thing we're arguing about is how much money we should get as a royalty every time something you made with a tool that we provided gets sold, not whether that's a legitimate arrangement. So this inseparability, uh, this kind of Unitarianism, <laughs> is the, the source of so much... Um, like kind of anti-imaginative work where they want us to think that we we have to take the bad with the good. And when we repeat those claims, right? When we say, oh, tech is un- irredeemable because there is no way to talk to your friends without having your relationships commodified or to search the internet without being spied on from asshole to appetite. We are doing their work because that's their claim. They're like, don't blame me. Uh, I can't make water that's not wet. How would I let you talk to your friends without commodifying your relationships? And there are some things that are like legit technically impossible that lawmakers want the platforms to do, right? Like making encryption that only works when like uh, bad guys are trying to break into it, but not when the cops are trying to break into it. That is legitimately impossible. And the whole like just nerd harder nerds is no way to actually get it. Which is why we need a technologically informed policy critique, because it's not enough to say, oh, I think you could, when they say, no, we can't. You have to know what is and is not technically possible, and that has to go into the critique, which is why I think books like Brian's and mine do important lifting here, because they aren't just books by people who are into policy, they're by people who understand and care about and even relish the good things you can get from technology and understand how you could get those without having to take the bad. That's a really uh, important point you make, having the technological background to kind of understand what's possible and what's not. Uh, In fact, I think early in the book, don't you say that some of what big tech is claiming is actually a fantasy? Not even science fiction, but is a fantasy that is just not how machines work, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the core of my critique here is that... um, you can always reconfigure the system, right? Either the tech platforms could reconfigure the system or their users could, or both. There, there's no such thing as an interoperability-proof computer. Uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, Turing complete universal von Neumann machine that can run every program we know how to write is the only computer we know how to make. And that means that you can always write a program that causes your printer to print with third-party ink. And you can always write a scraper that lets you leave Facebook, but takes the messages that are waiting for you there and puts them in the inbox that you're using on Mastodon or Diaspora or wherever else. Or you could always, you know, write a jailbreak for your phone that lets you install third-party apps or a third-party app store. Uh, and the, the claim that the tech companies make is that they have invented interoperability-proof computers what they've actually done is made it illegal to build those interoperable programs. We don't have computers that you can't modify. We have a bundle of legal regimes that Jay Freeman, who made the Cydia alternative app store for iOS, calls felony contempt of business model, where if you, if you wrap 
a technology in the right combination of digital rights management, uh, user license terms, software patent and trademarks, you can just make it illegal to do things your shareholders don't like, even if Congress or Parliament never sat down and decided to ban that conduct. And I do worry that at a certain point, a lot of people do just assume that water is wet, that this is the way things are and this is the way things operate and just accept that, you know, you're going to have to get things through the app store. People are going to pay their 30 percent. And that's just the way it is. How do you how do we break through that ignorance? How do we make people believe that something different is possible? Well, there's a there's there's got to be a mix here. So on the one hand, we like. So it's a it's a it's a chicken and egg problem. Uh people will believe it's possible if they see it. Uh, But they don't get to see it because doing it is illegal. (laughs) And so, uh, and the way that we make it legal again is by convincing people that it's possible. And so this is the, this is the iterative problem. And, you know, this is where my work as a science fiction writer, I think comes in. Uh, People often ask me like what relationship my, my novels have because I, I we, we didn't mention it, but I, I write science fiction novels. I've written a couple dozen of them. I'm a best-selling author of many beloved books and series. And people ask me how that relates to the advocacy work I do with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And it, it's often a way to carry on these very abstract arguments in very concrete ways to to show what we could do, uh, what we have done, and what we might do again. Um, and you know, I've, I've written long series of articles about this. You know, I have a whole series of articles at the EFF.org website on, uh, adversarial interoperability. That's like making stuff work together without the manufacturer's permission. But I also wrote a novella that, you know, it was in my collection radicalized and Ars Technica published and is being adapted for a graphic novel called Unauthorized Bread about breaking DRM on toasters and, and about, how that turns into a, like a no fooling, like shoot and war style human rights struggle. And, um, and, and, you know, those two things work together very well. Uh, if I were a tech bro, I might say synergistically. Um, and, and I think it's important that we rekindle our technological imagination and that it, it's too important to leave the destiny of technology up to the self-serving claims of tech bros, right? Tech bros say, uh, you know, AI, is so powerful and therefore so worth investing in that someday it's going to, you know, turn the human race into paper clips, mm-hmm. uh, which is like, as speaking in my professional capacity as a science fiction writer, is really bad science fiction. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the the European Union passed the Digital Markets Act, which is a like genuinely excellent landmark re- uh, legislation that requires tech platforms to stand up interoperable interfaces so that you can leave, uh, say, Facebook, uh, go somewhere else and have the messages directed at you in the communities that you belong to show up in that new place that you're in without having to be subject to Mark Zuckerberg's whims or surveillance. And um, uh, the problem that that the EU has had is they decided that the first thing they're going to try this out with is uh, end-to-end encrypted messaging. And that it needs to all be done within a couple of years. And um, this is quite dangerous, right? End-to-end encrypted messaging is a very high-stakes environment. Small, subtle errors in E2E uh, messaging platforms like uh, Face or um, WhatsApp have been exploited by cyber mercenaries like the NSO group and were implicated in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, right? There are a lot of stakeholders for introducing bugs in E2E messaging, and doing this on a short timeline is really hard. Whereas social media, like we have existing interoperability frameworks for it, right? We have ActivityPub and, and Mastodon. And and more to the point, you know, Twitter was actually designed by some of the Mastodon uh, creators or ActivityPub creators like Blaine Cook, who designed it from the ground up to be interoperable. And so like we know we can do it, right? We know that Twitter could be interoperable. Facebook could be interoperable. And yet the EU is like, we're going to do that one second. And uh, I've spent a lot of time talking to European bureaucrats and activists and trying to figure out how this happened. And my conclusion is that if you're like the, the median European bureaucrat, you have experience of interoperable messaging because like your German phone 
lets you, while you were in Brussels, send a text to your Dutch colleague who's holidaying in Spain, and it just works. Now, it works over SMS, which is a dumpster fire that we should kill immediately, but it just works. Whereas, like, unless you're old enough and weird enough to have used FidoNet or Usenet, uh, you've never seen federated social media. And so you literally just can't imagine that it's possible. And so it's not just about getting users to imagine that this is possible. It's also about getting policymakers to imagine that it's possible. And, you know, with EFF, I thankfully have a platform to do that. I made a thing called Interoperable Facebook that's basically a user manual for an imaginary version of Facebook that is um, uh, interoperable. Do you think uh, – I'm going to go down a, a weird line of thought here, uh, if you'll join me. Do you think we also need to do a better job of doing the basics of education on how a lot of this stuff works? As I'm reminded of, as I was reading this, I was remember, as I was reading your book, I was reminded of um, Rushkoff's book from 2010, Programmer Be Programmed. Uh, And I was also thinking, this is maybe the weirder connection of uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yeah, people bring that up a lot in the context of repair. Uh, yeah, there, cause there's that idea in that where he talks about, um, learning how to change your own oil and do your own basic repairs on the, on the motorcycle. Right. And how it is this, this thing that maybe you have a person that comes in and does this for you, but you should know the basics of how to do it. You should know the basics of how your machine works, um, and be able in an emergency situation to handle that for yourself, not only because, you know, things happen and you may not be able to find the per- find a person to fix it, but also because there is a certain like joy in the connection of the work with that particular machine. Um, do you think that like we have, do you think we do a bad job of teaching kind of like that basic lesson and teaching people the basics of how like all of this programming works? You and I are in like a very different space from a lot of the rest of the country, a lot of the rest of the world. Right. Um, hmm. And I think that, some of these systems, especially like Apple's, say, uh, less so I think some of the other platforms like Android, um, do a pretty good job of making it seem like interop isn't even possible. Making it seem yeah. like the, the, these walled gardens are kind of all that there is and that you shouldn't even look for the tools and figure out how to do this because there's nothing beyond that garden wall, Right. So I have complicated feelings about this because I don't want to descend into the kind of learn to code, right. you know, nonsense that we hear like when there's deindustrialization. I I I, I think that um there that you shouldn't have to be able to resolve every complicated technical question in order to to live in a civilized society, right? I I shouldn't have to be like a microbiologist to trust my tap water. Uh, I I, I shouldn't have to be a structural engineer to make sure that, you know, the ceiling doesn't fall in on me. Uh, You know, we we complain sometimes about overregulation and inspection and stuff, but we redid our kitchen this year. And the guy opened the walls and he was like, well, I guess they never put the vapor barriers in on the window. And he showed us the inside of our walls. And there was like one stick in one corner of the kitchen holding up the entire house because it had all rotted out because there wasn't a vapor barrier in there. And like, I don't want to have to be capable of making the fine distinction and understanding whether or not I need a vapor barrier when when someone does that installation, you know, I just want it to work. And so I I don't think that we should that we should have to be capable of understanding all the technological nuance to be safe. At the same time, I think that if we want to understand the kind of microeconomics of a company's conduct, right? Like what factors result in a company in shittifying things, doing things that are harmful to you. You have to look at the the discipline that they face and the dynamics of the individuals within the firm and how those two interrelate. So, you know, if the boss says, let's do something bad, and the employees say, I would feel angry about that, maybe the boss listens. I think they've got a better chance that those employees are unionized and can make it stick. But if the employees can say, we can't do that, I would feel bad about it, and we're going to lose a ton of money because we're going to get fined, or because our competitors will march in and undo the thing, every bad ad we create creates a market for an ad blocker, then um, there is a better chance that that employee will win the argument. So, you know, I, I 
have been involved in web publishing for uh, more than two decades now. And I was one of the people who helped start Boing Boing. And, you know, in the age of the pop-up ad, we had advertisers who would say, like, if you want our money, you've got to serve it as a pop-up ad. And and I think people today forget how obnoxious pop-up ads were. Like, you would open a browser window, and 25 more windows would spawn. And some of them would be, like, one pixel by one pixel, or would run away from your cursor as you chase them around the screen. And they would autoplay sound and video, or go full screen. Like, it was bad. And the way that we resolve that is by browsers building in ad, uh, pop-up blocking, right? And our argument went from we shouldn't do this because it's a bad user experience to we shouldn't do this because no one will see it. And that second argument carried a lot more weight with advertisers than it's a bad user experience. For one thing, the advertisers don't care if Boing Boing goes under. There's another weblog they can advertise on down the block. So who cares if they if they drive us to extinction with their, with their market leverage and the bad conduct it engenders? Now, I think that the way that you create the circumstances in which both regulators and competitors and users can counter bad conduct and make it less likely that your boss will ask you to do something bad and make it more likely that if they do, they'll listen to you when you say no, is by creating as few impediments as possible to modifying and reconfiguring technology so that it serves the interests of users. And to the extent that there are impediments, you make them democratically accountable ones like privacy, uh, labor, and consumer protection law, and not unilateral ones like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act or the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which allow companies to use the state to shut down individuals, collectives, and commercial firms that change their products without their permission. That ultimately, even the companies that style themselves as the greatest defenders of their users' interests, like Apple, which has spent millions of dollars on a global campaign advertising itself as a champion of freedom, uh, of, of privacy rather, uh, are not trustworthy as the final arbiter of your privacy. Apple kicked all the trackers out of iOS, except its own which it hid in iOS and lied about, and which track you as comprehensively as any of the ones that Facebook used to use, and for exactly the same purpose, targeting ads with all the problems that come with ad targeting. I, I just, this morning on my newsletter, wrote about a National Bureau of Economic Research paper that measured the change in financial fraud when people were able to block commercial surveillance. And financial fraud goes down if you're not spied on, because one of the things that like spear fishers, identity thieves, and con artists use is your surveillance data to target you, to trick you, and so on. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking around. We are back on talking with Corey Doctorow. If we can back up just a little bit, I want to get into some of the history here. Um, can you explain, I believe this is a Peter Thiel quote that you've got in here. Uh, towards the beginning, competition is for losers. Yeah, I mean, that's Teal's like second most famous quote after I want to suck your blood. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so so there's actually a really good book that uh, as we record this on the 29th, sorry to spoil the, the magic here, on the 29th of September, yesterday, there was a really good book published about this called uh, Techno-Feudalism, Who Killed Capitalism? by by Yanis Varoufakis, the former chief economist of Valve, and uh, and also uh, chief economist of Greece. <laughs> uh, both of those things. I wonder which one has the bigger economy. Uh, but um, he uh, he writes about the difference between uh, rent and profit, and this is a really important distinction. So. Uh, feudalism gave way to capitalism. This is to get back to Brian's book here, really. Feudalism gave way to capitalism with the Industrial Revolution. And before the Industrial Revolution, 
um, income w- of the ruling class was derived from rent. And rent is something that you get because you own something, not because you mobilize it in any particular way. So the, the feudal lord owns the farm and the serfs are bound to the land and they are required to work the land and then share the bounty of that work with the feudal lord. And that is a rent. And capitalists hated rent because what they wanted to do was infuse the land with capital, namely sheep, and then shear the sheep and send it as a material input to the textile mills, where it would form part of a a capital um, uh, production chain. And the money that you get from capital production chains is called profits. So rents are not profits and profits are not rents. And they often conflict, right? Think about a, a, a patent troll who makes nothing in this world, but owns a claim on an invention, maybe a very dubious claim, but has managed to capture the Eastern District of Texas courts and comes to Apple, who, whatever their other failings, make things, right? They are not merely a company that extracts rents. They do that too. They get 30 cents out of every dollar that you spend in an app and and so on. But they don't just extract rent. They also make things. And they go to Apple and they say, in order to make the thing, you have to pay us millions and millions of dollars because of a thing that we own, right? And so that is futile. And um, and uh, it is rent extraction, whereas making things is profit and it is capitalist. Both of them are not good for workers, right? Like, like you know, the, the, uh, the feudalist wanted to bind the peasants to the land through hereditary arrangements. And the capitalist wanted to indenture children to work in the mills uh, by tricking them into marking an X on a contract that forced them to live and work in these in these so-called dark satanic mills for 10 years of their lives. And and Brian in his book tells the story of Robert Blinko, who's uh, a Napoleonic war orphan who survived his enslavement in the mills and wrote a best-selling memoir about it that so moved Charles Dickens that he wrote Oliver Twist, which is basically a Luddite fanfic. Uh, and um, th- the... Neither of these are good, right? Neither of these are good for workers, but they are quite different. And Peter Thiel's quote illustrates this point that every capitalist wants to be uh, a rentier, right? Every capitalist wants to replace profit with rent because the thing about profit is it can be competed away. If you own a coffee shop and someone opens a better coffee shop next door, you might go out of business. But if you own the building that the coffee shop is in, and the new coffee shop next door puts it out of business, you get to rent out that storefront for more money because that neighborhood now has a great coffee shop in it. And so it doesn't matter how much competition there is, you get more money every time. Uh, and, and Peter Thiel, just like Warren Buffett, who talks about moats and walls, which is really the same thing, right? Uh, means of excluding competition from the market. Peter Thiel wants to be a rentier, but he pretends that he's a capitalist. Well, I think you see that in because uh, like Teal and uh, Palmer Lucky are the two that I watch the most closely, uh, in part because they are the two that have gone full bore into defense contracts. I mean, yeah. Musk obviously too, but like Teal and Lucky to me have figured out that uh, the mil- the American military is a really great place to set up and start charging rent. Um, yeah. That's like a whole separate podcast, maybe, though. Uh, well, I can I can tie it back to this one in one step. Do you want to hear it? I would love to, please. <laughs> so one of the big questions about how we get from here to there, how we get to a better internet where we have more interoperability and people are allowed to change how things work. Uh, and um, my one of my possible ways of getting there, I, I set out several scenarios for getting there, but one is to change our procurement guidelines. So the government is, you know, the, one of the biggest customers of every tech company. And um, they could and should make a rule that says, we're not going to buy anything from you unless you allow us to pay anyone we want to modify it or improve it. We're not going to get Google Classroom unless we can integrate any any uh, textbook in it. We're not putting anything in a government motor pool unless any mechanic can fix it. And we're not going to buy anything for the defense sector unless anyone can fix it and make parts for it. And this is a very old idea. It's it's just, you know, generally considered a bedrock of good public administration that you don't spend public money on stuff that the public can't maintain and improve. And this goes back, like, at least as far as Lincoln 
who would not buy rifles for the Union Army unless they had interoperable tooling and ammo for the completely obvious reason that you never want to go like, battle's canceled, boys! Uh, the gun factory's not making guns today, right? And yet, in defense, this has become uh, the exception and not the rule. So David Dyan, in his wonderful book, Monopolized, talks about how after um, you saw mass concentration in primary airspace contracting, which is something that the Obama administration insisted on. They, they did these shotgun weddings with primary airspace contractors. They said, like, 10 is too many for us to do business with. You're going to have to reduce to, like, four or five. And, and basically merged all of these giant firms into just a handful, uh, you know, showing you to what extent monopoly is a bipartisan affair. And, and as soon as that happened, some pretty cunning private equity guys looked around and said, hey, these primary airspace contractors, they have a lot of uh, subcontractors who are single source suppliers for key components in aerospace. We're just going to buy all of those single sourcers and we are going to drop the price <clears throat> of their products to effectively zero. We're going to make it as cheap as possible to use these single source components. But when the US military orders them for maintenance purposes, we're going to charge 50,000% markups, right? And like, I could easily see even the most repugnant GOP freak standing up in Congress and decrying this. Josh Hawley could get on a soapbox and talk about how inequitable this is. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez could be right next to him right? Like, this should be easy bipartisan politics that we say um, we are not going to allow our public money to be spent in ways that allows the public to have its pocket picked. Yeah, it the the defense contract stuff really kills me uh, because I, I know too much about it and I read through all of those reports. I'm thinking about so you, you now have a system where America is going to spend $1.7 trillion on the F-35 uh, only half of them can fly at any given time because they can't do basic repairs because of all those single sort, like because of exactly what you just said, right? Right. So it's kind of funny. We, we're talking about both the defense industry and the gaming industry in this conversation. I would say is like extreme, exa like examples of how it can get really bad. Uh, extreme examples of like if if this is if we don't. Uh, I hate to say if we don't rein in companies like Google and Facebook, but it's more like if we don't learn how to break down those walls um, and seize the means of computation, then you're going to end up in a place where, you know, the rest of the Internet operates like the defense industry does or like the gaming industry does now or what or aspires to. Right. So, like the, the stark consequences are right in front of us. Yeah. And, you know, I would actually say that we are already living in a, a heavily concentrated world. So the same factors that, <clears throat> excuse me, led to tech concentration, led to concentration in so many other sectors. Uh, you know, there's, there's um, in entertainment, you know, five giant movie studios, four giant labels, three giant, or four, five giant publishers, four giant labels, three giant uh, studios, two giant ad tech companies, and one company that does all the ebooks and audiobooks. But there's also like one cheerleading league and one wrestling league whose owner is a, you know, rapey Trumpist billionaire who misclassified his workers as contractors and took away their health care. And now all those 80s wrestlers are like begging for pennies to die with dignity of their work related injuries in their 50s. You know, uh, there's one company that controls all the eyewear in the world, uh, Essilor Luxottica. Every brand of eyewear you've ever heard of, whether it's like Dolce and Gabbana or Oliver Peoples or Coach or Oakley, owned by one company, which also owns every store that you've ever gone to to buy glasses sunglass hut target optical sears optical uh lens crafters they also make more than 50 percent of the world's lenses and they own the largest eye insurer in the world imed rx uh and you know international shipping is controlled by a cartel of three companies uh, who like keep telling their regulators like what the hell do you know we can make our ships as big as we want and they absolutely won't get stuck in the Suez Canal so everywhere you look there are these monopolies and they come about due to like a completely legible set of factors which is you know boils down to 40 years ago we stopped enforcing anti-monopoly law like if, if you used to put down rat poison and you didn't have rats and then you stopped and you got rats and the people who convinced you to stop doing it are like I don't know where these rats came from I think that like that ruse is very transparent. In fact, calling it a transparent ruse does violence to all the good, hardworking, transparent ruses around the world, right? It's just, just stupid. And so we know how these sectors got concentrated, and it's very hard to unwind this concentration. That's why until the Reagan years, 
the focus of antitrust law in the United States and competition law around the world was preventing monopoly formation in the first place. Because once a monopoly forms, it's very sticky. You know, the U.S. went after um, IBM in 1970. And uh, 12 years later, Ronald Reagan got elected and dropped the case. And in the 12 intervening years, IBM outspent the entire U.S. Department of Justice antitrust division on lawyers to fight the U.S. government. So the the entire U.S. government's entire antitrust apparatus for every company in the country was smaller than IBM's army of lawyers that they hired to fight one one case. And they did that for 12 consecutive years. They call it antitrusts Vietnam. And so in, in tech, uh, as in every other sector, we have this enormous concentration, and it's going to be the work of generations to dismantle it. But, you know, the best time to fight monopolies was 40 years ago, and the second best time is now. But with tech, we do have an exceptional set of remedies, because the universal Turing complete von Neumann machine that can run every program we know how to write is subject to uh, competition in ways that railroad lines are not, or that um, coffee empires or cheerleading leagues are not. We can decompose tech by allowing people to make interoperable technologies that allow users to leave technologies that are harming them or to modify those technologies so the harm doesn't come. So you could either do what, what Mark Zuckerberg did to MySpace and create bots that allow you to leave MySpace, go to Facebook, give your old MySpace and uh, username and password to the bot, and have the bot go off and get all your waiting fa- uh, MySpace messages and put them in your Facebook in- uh, inbox where you can reply to them and autopilot them back out. So you can just leave the platform. You lower the switching cost to zero. You don't have to choose between being spied on by Rupert Murdoch and talking to your friends, you can choose not to be spied on by Rupert Murdoch and continue to talk to all the friends who are more tolerant of, of evil, senescent Australian billionaires. Um, and uh, Or you, you can just um, modify the technology, right? You can ad block, you can tracker block, you can go to third parties and get them to fix your phone or your car or your tractor. And um, those remedies are unique to digital technologies because of the flexibility of digital technology. And and what each of those remedies do is reduce the market power and thus the political power of these techn- of these technological firms, right? The way that IBM was able to finance its 12-year war on the US Department of Justice was by ripping off the customers that uh, the US Department of Justice was trying to save. If you simultaneous with punishing them for ripping off those customers, make it technologically harder for them to rip off those customers, then you deprive them of the supply line that they are using to fight you in the much bigger and better fight. And so this is why I think we should start with technology, not just as, as you kindly quoted at the start of this, because you know digital platforms are we're going to fight all the fights that matter about the climate and about racial reckoning and about gender and so on. Uh, but also because digital platforms are in this, you know, irreversible, irreducible way, easier to demonopolize than other kinds of, of sectors. The the legislation and the antitrust piece of this, I think, is really important. I want to focus on for just a minute here. Uh, I had <laughs> – it's funny. You're talking about low, low switching costs. I have – as I said in the beginning, in the opening, I have a Facebook group chat – I cannot escape. They will not switch. Keeps me going back to the website. I don't want to be on it anymore, but it's the one place I can talk to these people. Um, they asked me yesterday how I thought about uh, AI regulation, when we should get on it, etc. cetera. Uh, and I thought about, uh, I had just read this piece of the book uh, and I thought it was very important and I quoted it directly to them. <laughs> Everything policymakers have done to rein in big tech has cemented the dominance of the handful of rotten companies who stole the internet from us. Uh, How did we get into that place? Yeah, well, it's about um, reducing the number of companies so so that the companies can solve the collective action problem that you're struggling with, right? You can't leave Facebook because you and your friends can't all agree whether it's time to go and if it is where you should go. And this is a familiar problem, right? Anyone who's ever tried to decide where you're going to go for family movie night 
or who's uh, at the end of a conference or a sports match or a concert, tried to get all their friends to agree on where to go for dinner or drink, uh, knows that these collective action problems are really hard to solve. And that is true of industry as well. If you remember the Napster Wars, you had an entertainment sector that was quite concentrated. It was about seven you know, big music companies at the time and, and you know, six or seven big uh, TV and cable operators. Uh, and um, the tech sector was much bigger, right? They, they actually, like, you know, turned over, like, an order of magnitude more cash uh, every year than the entertainment sector. And so a kind of naive interpretation of who should win that fight is, well, the bigger industry wins its fight against the smaller industry. But the big industry was a rabble, Right, They had a collective action problem to solve because they were hundreds of companies that hated each other's guts. And whenever it came time to try to formulate a policy, they couldn't even agree on where to rent a hall to meet in, much less how to cater it, much less what they should tell Congress or Parliament. And they got their asses kicked. And today, tech is... You know, to 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 quote um, Tom Eastman, five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. And all of those companies are super cozy, and they find it very easy to unify their bargaining position. And that means that on the one hand, we get laws passed that make it harder for us to do the things that would save ourselves to reverse engineer, to scrape, to hack. Um, and on the other hand, they uh, um, get laws passed that make it easier for them to act without constraint. Not only are they not required to have interoperability gateways, APIs, where you can plug in rival services, but they also aren't particularly constrained by privacy, labor, or consumer protection laws. And they can do things that if they weren't doing them with an app would be a crime. But once you add an app, it becomes legal. So it's this funny regime, right? Where like, you can think of an app as a web page that has just enough IP wrapped around it that it's illegal to add a privacy blocker to it. Um, but at the same time, like Uber is a workplace that has just enough of an app wrapped around it that uh, anti-wage discrimination laws don't apply, right? And and in both cases, they have figured out how to use technology to forbid what they don't want and um, uh, get the latitude to do what they do want. Yeah, it's the the app thing is really funny. I get a lot of uh, shit from friends because I don't I, I try as best I can to not use any of them. Like if something has a program that I would put on my phone that's that's delivered by the company, it's usually a sign for me that I should not use it. Um, right. And I should try to run run it my own way. Even just run it through a browser is usually a better idea. Uh, right. Anyone stuck on Facebook, uh, use the the basic version. Uh, will save you a lot of headache with their apps and what the apps do to your phone, by the way. Uh, quick tip. Um, so we're kind of getting to the end of our conversation here. And I want to get, I've got so many questions for you. I could sit here and talk to you another hour about like uh, what the nutsack affair was, uh, why Robert <laughs> Bork is in your book, <laughs> all sorts of wonderful, strange uh, uh, tangents that we could go on. But I want to focus on the last like 50 pages or so, which is you anticipating your critics. Um, and I yeah. thought that this was a really wonderful portion of the book. It's really uh, framed in a fun way because it's all what aboutism. Uh, right. In answering what aboutism. Um, right. And the first one that really struck me is something that I've been struggling with for a long time. And that's algorithmic radicalization. Uh, and you said something in there that I thought was really fascinating, which was that we, we have this idea right now that uh, some people are, and it's usually not you or your friends, it's always other people, are enchanted by what they see online and are led down this tunnel of radicalization and are really affected by it. And that uh, the answer to this, of course, is to call Facebook up to Congress, have Mark Zuckerberg testify and make sure that the people that are supposed to have their hands on the wheel have their hands on the wheel. And maybe even we grant them new, some new powers so that they can do what they need to do to make sure that people aren't posting things we feel are dangerous. Um, you point yeah. out that people from Rasputin to Mesmer have uh, claimed that they've been doing, been able to do mind control. It always ends up being bullshit. Um, right. So uh, can you talk about algorithmic radic radicalization why it is a concern and why it also isn't a concern. 
Um, yeah. So uh, um, let me start with uh, a little uh, framing here. Mm-hmm. So the, the, there's kind of two groups of people who are worried about big tech. There's the people who think that big tech is a feature, but the bug is that it's being mismanaged. So like we have the wrong person serving as the unelected social medias are for life of 4 billion people uh, at Facebook. So we either have to make Mark Zuckerberg better at his job, or um, we have to replace him with someone who's better. And I call those people like, you can think of them as like constitutional monarchists, right? That that the problem isn't that we have a king, but that the king uh, operates with too much latitude. And and he needs like an aristocracy, a a house of lords that holds him in, in check. And then you have uh, small R Republicans like me who want to just get rid of the uh, overthrow the aristocracy, right? Who, who want, um, you know, to uh, abolish Mark Zuckerberg, not fix Mark Zuckerberg. And um, this problem actually very neatly illustrates the the incompatibility of the two approaches, like where those two approaches come into conflict. Because uh, I think that what happens with online radicalization is not mind control. I, I think that like we do the tech bros quite a, a PR service when we take at face value their claims to be dopamine hacking wizards. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just like when we let um, the AI freaks say, uh, I've made a, a technology so powerful, it's going to devour the human race, which is like just another way of saying my technology is very valuable and you should invest in it. Um, when we let these guys say, I'm an evil sorcerer, we we also like help make the case for why you should pay a 40% premium to advertise on Facebook, because they go, they go to their advertisers and they say, I don't know if you've heard my critics, but it turns out I'm hacking dopamine loops here. And like, if you need to sell something, I will hack the dopamine loop of anyone you want to sell it to, and they will buy it, right? And, um, and, and, and so... If you want to know how it is that people end up believing things that are objectively untrue, like Flat Earth or, you know, uh, QAnon-style conspiracies, I think we can look to the work of your uh, motherboard colleague, Anna Merlin, and and her excellent uh, Republic of Lies, uh, where she talks about how conspiratorialism arises out of the confluence of um, real trauma uh, so places where institutions have failed you and um, uh, people who offer alternatives to the official wisdom that more better fit your lived experience. And so uh, I think about the vaccine, um, uh, anti-vax and vaccine hesitancy epidemic that we had along with the actual COVID pandemic and how the the vaccine deniers said, well, I did my own research and I don't trust the FDA. Uh, And how people like me who've had four shots and just made their appointment for their fifth uh, made fun of those people for doing their own research. But I tell you what, I have chronic pain. And 10 years ago, I went to see a doctor who said, oh, I know what you should do. You should just take opioids for the rest of your life. It's really safe. And I did my own research and I concluded that that doctor was full of shit and that um, the pharma companies were <clears throat> uh, colluding with their regulators to murder people. And I think I was right. And I didn't take opioids. I was an opioid denier, right? Uh, and yet, when I say to vaccine deniers, the pharma companies are fine, and the FDA is a sound regulator, I know I'm lying. And so do they. And so this is the the vacuum in which conspiratorialism uh, uh, springs up and fills. As to how people end up there, you can think of the conspiratorial funnel as being just another species of the Internet's many specialization funnels, where you might think that you're into comic books, but the Internet helps you find out that you're into a very specific subgenre of Japanese comic books that you wouldn't have ever found out about, except that you found yourself in a general community that had a subboard that had a subboard that had a subboard, and all of a sudden you found the thing that matters most to you. And this is true for all kinds of beliefs that were once at the periphery and now moved to the center, like Black Lives Matter, or like unions are good, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing that makes people think Black Lives Matter is not being uh, led into a, a dark corner of the internet where they're brainwashed with machine learning. 
it's the lived experience that we have a society that treats black lives like they don't matter, whereas they objectively do. And then you find people who put that framing to it and you're like, I get it. I get it. Now I get it. And so, you know, I think we've all had the experience of going down a great rabbit hole, right? Where like you go shopping for some kitchen cabinets. I, I did just have my kitchen redone and you find uh, uh, a cabinet whose joinery fascinates you and you don't even know the word joinery. So you type in how kitchen cabinets are made to YouTube and now you learn the term uh, joinery and then you learn the term Finnish carpentry and then you learn uh, about Japanese no-nail do- um, uh, joinery and you're just getting these suggestions and they're leading you into an ever more specialized domain. And before you know it, you have bought a home workshop and you've devoted the rest of your life to making a very specific kind of Japanese no-nail join that is so unbelievably hypnotic to make, watch, and use that it, it happily occupies the next 10 years of your life, right? And and when we see that process happen in ways that give people um, exotic hobbies, we don't worry about it. And when we see it happen in ways that give people beliefs that we agree with, we don't worry about it. But when it um, drags people into conspiratorial rabbit holes, we worry about it for good reason, but we start in the wrong place. We start way upstream or way downstream of the cause, right? The reason that people are susceptible to those beliefs, the reason they click the more specialized link is because they have experienced the failure of our institutions at the hands of monopolies that have co-opted their regulators and visited enormous personal harm on them. And that makes them vulnerable to conspiratorial accounts, especially when the rest of us are running around saying, trust the science, America was always, always great, uh, and, and, um, you know, and so on and so on, right? All these, all these, uh, ways of just gaslighting people that the problems they're experiencing aren't real. Learn to code, right? Is, is another good one, right? Your deindustrialization is just a problem of your failure to pursue further education. Um, and, uh, and, and so, as to how that impacts this this conflict between uh, small-R republicanism and constitutional monarchy, if we say to the platforms, you have to spy on everything that your users do and stop them from doing things we don't like, we can't also in the same breath say, you have to let your users bypass whatever filters and locks and so on you've put on the system, escape your domain, avoid your surveillance, and uh, devolve their content moderation to a community level by federating the the social media that they use with other platforms that they have more direct control over. These are incompatible goals. And I just don't think that, like, I don't think there's a world in which we make Mark Zuckerberg so committed to having a safe platform that he finds a three-ring binder fat enough that you can fit all the rules to regulate all the speech by 4 billion people speaking a thousand languages and living in a hundred countries. And so it's got to be one or the other. And I choose the one where users get to have technological self-determination and not the one where we try to make Zuckerberg better at his job. No gods, no kings. Let the communities manage themselves. Yeah, for better and for worse, right? I mean, it's true that if you let communities manage themselves, right? If you let people go off to gab and run their own communities... They're going to use the N-word a lot. But it's also true that when you ban the N-word on Facebook, that what ends up happening is that black people who gather to complain about being called the N-word get kicked off the platform, right? And I just don't think that you're going to be able to um, make Facebook moderators understand the difference between, say, documenting the human rights crimes you experienced and uploading your terrorist beheading videos, uh, they repeatedly fail to make that distinction. And so what we end up with is uh, all of the um, corpuses of data that will be used to prosecute human rights violations going down Facebook's memory hole. Uh, and yet we still have the dark corners where the people who are committing these crimes can gather and, and share these videos with impunity. So we get the worst of all worlds. You know, we have to normalize dark corners. It is weird that we think that... Um, uh, it's that like the only people who should be free from Mark Zuckerberg's surveillance and oversight or, you know, whatever that guy is who runs Twitter's name is, I can never remember, or, or, or these other services are far right cranks on Gab. Like, why should they have all the fun? You know, w- we should all have a dark corner because another word for a dark corner 
is an autonomous community space, not run by a giant multinational corporation. And the, the Zuckerberg solution to a lot of these problems increasingly, and I'm so sorry to do this to you at the end of the call. Oh, God. You know what's You're coming. not going to say blockchain, are you? No, you're going to say AI. Well, they're the same thing. Yes, they are. That's actually, we're going to do a segment about that next, uh, next episode with Janice. Um, cause I'm sure you get a lot of, you get a lot of like bad emails, right? Just like bad PR emails about, uh, you know, AI in a year, two years ago, it was constantly web three blockchain, web three blockchain is going to do X, Y, and Z going to solve X, Y, and Z problem going to get us out of, you know, all, all, all these issues. Now it's the same formulation, but it's all AI. It's almost like a control F uh, was done. And these bad PR emails are all about AI now. But anyway, back to the book. The last chapter is what about blockchain, uh, which begins with kind of an apology where you say, you know, I wrote this right before the big crypto crash, but I think that uh, it is an instructive chapter because just as you said we are now living through the exact same thing but with ai hype um yeah can you can you tell me about that a little bit oh gosh um well uh you know i think that that on the one hand um we saw with cryptocurrency how you could take people who were actually you know people who who had a good uh, a, a good moral center right who wanted a more decentralized internet who, who understood that a big part of the problem with the internet was the concentration of ownership, but who were kind of led down the garden path with these bonkers, you know, speculative uh, cryptocurrency ideas uh, and the notion that you could uh, fix all of the problems with the internet by sticking toll booths up everywhere that you had to pay for using fake money that um, the, the investors had a monopoly on and that they would sell you for your useless real money that uh, you would only be too glad to, to be to be parted with. Uh, and, and how that just turned out to be like a giant time suck and waste of, of time and energy and didn't get us anywhere. And, you know, crypto is not AI, right? There are some things that you can do with AI that are useful. I mentioned human rights uh, stuff before. The Human Rights Data Analysis Group, uh, founded by Patrick Ball, uh, uses uh, large language models uh, to create the largest human rights database in the world that is a database that characterizes all of the killings documented in a hundred smaller databases for whether they are likely to be identical and whether they were carried out during the Colombian Civil War by right-wing militias funded by the CIA and overseen by the people who are currently running the country, by leftist FARC guerrillas, by the government of the time, or whether they were unrelated to the Civil War and they were just like a bar fight or whatever. And um, and and those LLMs have produced something that has become really key to the Truth and Reconciliation hearings in 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 um, in in Colombia. These trials in Colombia. So it's 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 a very important contribution. And there are things you can do with LLMs. There's things that you can do with generative AI that are legitimately useful and I think are fine. I am okay with kids using image prompting services to make pictures of their D&D characters. Like, that's fine, right? But the, the problem is that AI doesn't solve any of the things that it's claimed to solve, and it doesn't do the things that it's claimed to do, right? It, it, there isn't a world in which AI would replace screenwriters and make good screenplays. The bet that the studios were making is that if you fired all the screenwriters and replaced them with shell scripts, that because their sector is so concentrated, we would continue to pay to watch bad shows, right? That were that were written by by robots. Um, in the same way that they bet that um, we will continue to call their switchboard, even though they've replaced the person who n- knows how to route your call with an interactive voice response system that just makes you shout seventeen. No, 17, no, 17, no, one, seven. Uh, and then you hang up in frustration and they figure you'll just take it. Like Lily Tomlin used to say, we're the phone company, we don't have to care. Um, and, uh, you know, AI is not going to be able to make the fine-grained distinctions that humans can make. Um, and even where AI is used for so-called decision support, so, you know, you take all the uh, the chest x-rays and you show them to the AI and you ask it to guess which ones are cancerous, and then you show its judgments to an actual radiologist who clicks a button if they think it's right, um, that too fails, right? Because unless that radiologist 
spends as much time looking at that um, at that uh, X-ray as they would have without the AI, they're going to end up being um, someone who falls prey to what's called automation blindness, which is that your job is to look at a thing and then 99 times out of 100 press the green button, and eventually you just start pressing the green button, right? You you stop you stop even noticing what the thing is doing, and no one wants to buy an AI so that they can have exactly the same number of radiologists processing exactly the same number of x-rays, right? They want to hire an AI so they can fire some radiologists. And so in the same way that the writer strike resulting in uh, AIs not being able to use to replace writers means that Hollywood is just not going to pay for site licenses for AIs for, for writing, right? Like, the only reason they wanted it is because they could fire writers. If they can't fire writers, they don't want it. Right, it doesn't make good screenplays. It just makes cheap screenplays. And if it's if it's more expensive because now you're paying the writer and the AI site license, then there's no market for it. So I think that we are like trapped in this kind of uh, hype cycle where these guys are living rent free in our heads, and we have lots of um, dumb discourse about paperclip maximizing and not nearly enough about like automated sentencing and the problems of. Uh, uh, self-driving cars with a human in the loop where the human gets automation blindness and the self-driving car drives through a red light. Uh, like, we're, we're, just, we're just paying attention to the wrong things as we did with cryptocurrency and trying to solve the wrong problem as we did with cryptocurrency. And a bunch of freaks are getting unbelievably wealthy as happened with cryptocurrency. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a crying shame. I, I'm, I'll stipulate that, like, I sometimes see these uh you know stochastic parrots barf up some text that i think is interesting yeah i just don't think it's interesting enough that we should talk about it as much as we do and i certainly don't think it's worth the 13 trillion dollars morgan stanley says it's worth it's very frustrating to me because there's so few uh specifics especially again i cover the defense industry i was attending a nuke conference recently a lot of very smart very smart people on the panels very intelligent conversations, a lot of very interesting stuff about the future of arms control. But one thing that was brought up, and I hear this again and again in this space, is that you know we need regulation now to make sure that AI and command and control don't ever get integrated. And my question to the, my question to that is always, and no one can really answer it, is who is talking about integrating AI and command and control, and what does it actually look like? What are the nuts and bolts of AI in command and control mixing? And no one can ever answer that question. And I always find that very bothersome. And, and how is that distinct from existing automation systems in, um, you know, first response mm-hmm. or, or, or tactical response and so on, where you already have an enormous amount of, of automated systems? You know, I, as I learned from that Nina Hagen documentary, 99 Red Balloons, uh, it is very easy for a, a nuke to be launched, uh, much easier than we would want it to be. Um, it's funny you mentioned this. I'm writing a, or, or I'm committed to writing a short story about the end of nuclear weapons for uh, Far Futures Lab, which is uh, run by uh, um, some anti-nuke scientists. Um, and, uh, and, and so I am uh, at some point going to write them a story. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading that story. Uh, nuke stuff is endlessly fascinating to me. And you're right. Like there's a lot of stuff that we already, we already use machines for. Uh, there's a lot of automation already going on. Uh, that's completely disconnected from, from what we would think of as generative, you know, GAN or LLM, right. Which is kind of what AI is synonymous with at the moment. But, and as someone who grew up in the anti-nuclear proliferation movement and got arrested blockading, arms bazaars and nuclear uh, cruise missile guidance plants. Like I think the answer to keeping um, AI out of the command and control for nukes is to unilaterally disarm, right? To unilaterally dismantle the American nuclear arsenal and uh, then put pressure on every other country in the world to do it. Because I don't think that nukes are useful in war. Uh, I don't think they keep us safe. I think they make us dangerous. I think it's horrifically reckless to do it. And again, it's just a way of, of having the wrong debate, right? The debate about which, who, how how the planet-destroying weapons should be controlled is, is a couple of steps downstream from should we have planet-destroying weapons. Yeah, it's really fascinating because a lot of people in the nuke space have uh, abandoned that position. 
I would say. Uh, they maybe think of unilateral disarmament as like a far-flung future where, where it, would, it would be nice to get to. Uh, but the the moment uh, makes that an untenable position, uh, they would say. Um, and I, I don't know. I could sit here and talk about nukes all day, but I know you need to go. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I just uh, – yes. And I just don't know, uh, like, what they think the nukes are going to do. Like, if, if Putin nukes Poland, are we going to nuke Moscow? Like – how does that produce an outcome that anyone is happy with? They're, like, what about the outcome where Putin nukes Poland and we don't nuke Moscow? Is how is that not actually better than, than the one where we do nuke Moscow and then kill all the people in Ukraine that the that the um, uh, radiation reaches over the next five years? Well, the whole thing is fascinating because the I think their argument would be like, well, we have to have the nukes. To make sure that Moscow or that the Poland is never nuked in the first place. That's deterrence, right? We have to have 5,000 right. of these things. I understand. Yeah. I just don't believe in the theory of deterrence. No, I mean, and you should Because shouldn't. I don't, I, I, I think that, you know, if Putin nukes uh, Poland, uh, there's going to be a lot of Russians who are going to be pretty unhappy. Yeah. Uh, not because they love Poles, although some of them do, uh, but because they, um, are going to die of radiation poisoning. Yeah, because the because the radiation poisoning from even one of the one the yield of one nuke right now would be devastating to the planet in ways that I don't think people are prepared for. Um, we should have you back. We you know I, I we need to have you back just to talk about defense contracts and nukes. I don't know if the audience would like that. <laughs> you should get David Dyan on to talk about it. It's, That's a good idea. He's, he's he's chapter and verse on it. Corey, thank you so much for coming back onto the show. Where can people find the book? Uh, where can people find the audiobook, especially? Yeah, so, well, you can get the audiobook anywhere that audiobooks are sold without DRM, which means anywhere except Audible and Apple. Uh, Google Play, Downpour, Libro.fm. Uh, you can also get it from me, craphound.com slash shop. Uh, but you can also get the hardcover or the ebook anywhere they're sold. Um, actually, Amazon, although they won't sell audiobooks without DRM, they sell ebooks without DRM. So you can get a Kindle edition, you can get a Kobo edition, you can get a whatever. And then the hardcovers from Verso. They're distributed by Random House, and they're in every bookstore that has a Random House account, which is every bookstore. So any bookstore you want will sell you the book. It's called The Internet Con How to Seize the Means of Computation. Corey, thank you so much for coming on to Cyber and walking us through this. Thank you. Lovely to talk. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.